Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show for 2023. This is episode number 103, and you're very welcome to join us. Happy New Year to you. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following, well, several genres. Oh, several. Um, crime. Thrillers. Uh, suspense. And mysteries. Oh, you got it. I did for once. Uh, a bit more on it this uh, today. Uh, as you can hear in my voice, I've had a bit of a virus this week, so it's been sort of a stop-start week, really. Um, so I sound a little deeper and throaty. Man fluitis? Something like that. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest, uh, but I'm 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 recovering, and it's just as well because we've got a massively busy week to come. Um, more of which later. Let's uh, first of all mention who our guest is. It is J.M. Simpson. J.M. Simpson. Joe Simpson, who is an author of, well, actually two series, one that's already out and one that is coming out. Uh, we'll talk more about her later. But Joe, is, it was a great interview and um, got a great deal of it. And I thought what an interesting she's taken the theme of, of you know, setting her books uh, at a sort of imaginary coastal resort based on Tenby. But using the National Lifeboat Association as the um, the RNLI, yeah, we were trying as the to focus of her novels. We it's really fascinating. We were trying to work out, weren't we, whether anyone else has used the uh, coastal rescue of any sort of coastal rescue uh, I'm as not a focus. Sh- well, I think possibly there must be, but none come to mind. No, and but, I, I quite like that because it's different. I do think it's one of the best things about Britain is the RNLI and the way it was set up to you know stop shipwrecks that were blighting uh britain's shores in the 19th century particularly um you know basically you know had a one in three chance of coming home alive it felt like at times because you know there were so many disasters they pull random people out the sea that have been swimming gone a bit too far as well oh, all they? sorts of things also <laughs> they're amazing amazing people on lilos absolutely right well we'll talk to joe simpson uh, a little bit later uh, but at first, of, of course, we, we kick off with the early 2023 news. And uh, let's just reflect on last year's book sales to start with. This is the fiction uh, top 50. It's a, it, In fact, this is the UK top 50 of all books, but it's dominated by fiction. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, Colleen Hoover hasn't really crossed my radar that much. Well, I see, I, I see Colleen's book everywhere because, well, obviously, you know, that's why we're talking about it. And I've picked it up a few times, read the blurb, put it back, picked it up. And, and so I'm sort of almost ready to read it because I'm fascinated. Why, why is it so popular? I know it's that the book that TikTok kind of elevated. Yes. yes. And it's well known for that. But 
still, you know, so many people have read it and then it's gone like snowball effect. It, there must be something. Absolutely. So it, <laughs> what we're talking about specifically is Clean Hoover's It Ends With Us, which has sold for Simon & Schuster 693,850 copies last year. And then at numbers two, three and four, it won't surprise you, it's our favourite man. Well, we talk about him a lot. And that, of course, is Richard Osman, who has sold uh, over 500,000 copies for uh, The Bullet, The Mist, and The Man Who Died Twice. And The Thursday Murder Club, which has been out for over two years now, still sold nearly half a million copies last year. So he's doing amazingly well. But then you look down the list, and there's Colleen Hoover again, with Ugly Love at six, Verity at number seven. And it starts with us. At number 13? Yeah, I think there's two versions, aren't there, that they had out. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, just astonishing. Oh, is it ends with us and starts with us? Yes, yeah, it? no, it's different, oh, different that's titles. that's just me being dim. <laughs> a little, a little. Um, but then you look down the list and then J.K. Rowling rolls in with um, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the very first of the series, over 20 years old now, still selling 144,000 copies. Yeah, but I think that the, the thing about Harry Potter, though, is that as the, the people who read it as children, they grow up and they're now having children and they're introducing it to their children. So it's, it's going to go on for decades. It'll mm. sort of have waves of popularity, I'm sure. Uh, we've also got two books by a former guest of ours, Andrew Child and Lee Child, and uh, The Better Off Dead uh, has come in at 17, and No Plan B was another one of the uh, collaborations between the two brothers, as Jack Reacher continued under a sort of new ownership, if you like. Um, fascinating. And uh, then the first of the uh, non-fiction books is at number eight, and it's Jamie Oliver with One, which is... Uh, the, the his book about you know using I think it's one so, pot isn't it yeah so it's basically tray baking um, tray he, and pot you know he's done very well I mean you know his books do sh shift a lot of copies it has to be said uh, how many has he sold for Michael Joseph three hundred and fifty four thousand three hundred twenty four um, very impressive but not many indie authors on this list in fact I can't see any at all uh, and that is again a reflection I think of the fact that these book sales are reflected on sales through shops. And it's so hard for indie authors to get in. Supermarkets as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're going you're to get those and knock down prices, aren't you? So that's um, that's a sort of reflection of last year. And I haven't read any of the ones in the top, what you read as no, the top. No. Well, you know, you are busy. You've been busy this week reading another Hobart book. I've been reading a couple of uh, pieces of work by our authors, and, and that keeps us busy. Oh, totally. Um, I don't know if we should hint too much, but I've read the second book of one of our authors, and I loved it. I absolutely loved mm -hmm. it. I've got some feedback for the author, but nothing major at all. And I'm about to read book one, two, three, four of another one of our authors. Well, I, I'm in the middle of, of the work in progress of book, of book four for one of our authors, and I love it. Uh, you know, there's certain aspects I absolutely adore. Um, and it's really bravura writing as well. So uh, more feedback to come for that author in question when I finish it. Yeah, so if you're listening, <laughs> we, we have been very busy reading your books. And another author <laughs> sent us uh, a chunk of a prequel, which was brilliant, kept me gripped. I mean, literally bolted to that pink chair opposite us for the two hours it took me to read it. I absolutely adored it. You it might was... have to give me a hint who that was. I can't think. Um, well, it's in Africa. so that Oh, Yes, yes, yes. I know. <laughs> um, right. Further news, and we'll 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 we'll, um, we'll whip through this because we're very conscious that 
quite a bit of feedback we get is saying, could you make the, pro- we love your program, but could you keep it down to an hour or no so? No one has said that to me. Well, I get that feedback. So wow. um, I'm, 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 we're going to endeavor to try that. Anyway, uh, well, I mean, it's dominated the pay- the press worldwide this week. And that is, of course, Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, which is due to be published this week officially, but came out in Spain semi-accidentally last week, which has meant that the British tabloid press got themselves a cop- hold of a Spanish-language copy and started to uh, reveal tons of extracts from the biggest self-harming book in the history of publishing, as far as I can see. It's done him no good whatsoever, apart from made him a lot of money. Now, before we recorded this podcast, I did request two banned words. Meghan and Harry. Meghan and Harry. Um, But I retracted that because it's so big in the news. I mean, even this morning, I I took one of our um, boys to rehearsal and that's all they were talking about on Radio 4. They had a bunch of journalists and Mm. they were discussing it. So you can't escape it. At the moment, well, look, from a publishing point of view, it's been a massive disappointment for Penguin Random House because they had so tightly controlled the access to this book, uh, and somehow it came out um, in Spain. I'll, I'll read this. Uh, this is in the bookseller. So apparently, it's actually called something completely different in Spanish. Um, well, it clearly, would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but actually, totally. I mean, it's not called spare in or whatever the Spanish word for it's called on la sombra in um in la sombra in spanish which translates as in the shadow and uh reuters reported that several bookstores in spain were selling the much awaited memoir before it was withdrawn so uh the papers managed to get a hand on it uh a spokesperson for the spanish publisher barcelona based playa iljanes editores which belongs to penguin random house told sky a very clear launch protocol was established and communicated to all customers so that the book would not be marketed before that date everything points to the fact that some customers have breached their commitment to the publisher and have put the uh, book on sale before the agreed date so it's actually coming out on tuesday the 10th of january the day after this um, podcast is published and it previously been reported the book was being printed at clays in bungie suffolk which is where we to our uh, some of our print runs under conditions of great secrecy with staff being checked on their way out for copies do you know they did that with um the most re- i think the most recent harry potter mm, I remember yeah it. i remember that um and also um because um, bloomsbury i know that um they had very strict uh, rules on who could access the files related to harry potter and they all had to sign you know usual non-disclosure blah de blahs but i remember that the, the printer issue as well, that there are people who just sort of coming in and out and checking sheets and they have to be really stringent on this. Oh, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, let's, 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 I mean, you know, we won't talk about what's in the book because too much, because it's just so, oh, it just does my head in really. Um, but there is this other story which has been fascinating us. And we mentioned this some time ago was this, um, uh, this story about, a junior member of, I think it was Simon Schuster, wasn't it? He yeah. was working at. Uh, basically, he's pled guilty. I can't remember his name now. I'm going to have to try and find the article. Who say something? Yeah, it was something. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Um, basically, he'd been stealing the manuscripts of some of the leading authors. Um, he stole over a thousand manuscripts as a junior member of the Simon and Schuster team. It's amazing how he got away with Ian it for McEwen so long. Was a victim. I know it's absolutely extraordinary. Anyway, he's pled guilty. 
Uh, we'll skip over that because I can't find the details right now. Um, the final thing we wanted to talk about in this section of the program was that Apple have launched a raft of audiobooks narrated by artificial intelligence. Your favourite subject. Oh, boy, here we go. To its Apple Books platform, but maintains it remains committed to celebrating and showcasing the magic of human narration. Yeah, right. Well, I have listened. To, in fact, we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll play you a sample uh, in a moment. But I have listened to the samples they've given. And it's fair to say that it's, it's a fair approximation of narration, pacing and uh, timbre and all those sort of things. But what they're playing are non-character elements. So it's the, it's the nar- narrative bits, which, you know, an AI can cope with. But can it then synthesize characters? So if you... If Cheap, you... I mean, cheaply. I mean, this is the thing. You could probably synthesize some character voices because they've got a whole load of samples of different people speaking and they could plug that in. But who, I mean, that's almost as time-consuming as someone narrating it themselves. But then a book such as Catch as Catch Can, which is very much in Liverpool. Yeah, and Sin, which is the most recent one I've just published, yep. Or Scottish Mm. crime fiction, or, well, any region of the UK, or even anywhere in the world. And especially if they've got characters from different areas, and part of their culture and their accent is in- integral to who that character is mm. then you know as an author you'd think you'd want that character voice with the accent and the what you know all that goes along with that mm. but if ai can't cope with that it will eventually it will eventually and look um you know we've we've reached out to a ukrainian firm who have been recreating the voices of star wars characters for whom the actors are too old now their voices are too old to sound like their younger selves. So they did some work with Luke Skywalker's voice. So Mark Hamill did a, a track and then they, they youthified it. And the same with James Earl Jones, who now is too old to voice Darth Vader. Um, but Apple's website reads this. <clears throat> uh, more and more book lovers are listening to audiobooks, yet only a fraction of books are converted to audio, leaving millions of titles unheard. Many authors, especially independent authors and those associated with small publishers, aren't able to create audiobooks due to the cost and complexity of production. Apple Books Digital Narration makes the creation of audiobooks more accessible to all, helping you meet the growing demand by making more books available for listeners to enjoy. And they have divided their AI narrations uh, to what the organisation, that's Apple of course, call them soprano voices and baritone voices. Well, I'm definitely a baritone. But um, I I think we should judge for ourselves. So I'm just going to play. I've lifted this from the Apple website. I do hope they don't sue me for for copyright, but I'm sure they would like the publicity. Judge for yourselves how these sound. Movement in the greenhouse drew his eye, and a woman emerged. At first, he wasn't sure. The woman was about the right age, but there was something different about her about the way she carried herself. The bright aura that had always surrounded Allison was missing from this woman. And yet, there was something achingly familiar about her. I looked up to find a wall of trees had materialized ahead of us. I hadn't noticed, because I'd been staring at my feet. I couldn't believe the fields actually had an end. It was further away than I would have liked, but at least I now had something tangible to run toward. So you've heard the the clips. Uh, what do you think? I don't 
I don't like them. And I think it's partly because they sound a bit sci-fi-ish still to me, you know, a bit Star Trek-y. <laughs> and there's not much variation, not only within the accents of each voice, but also that that voice itself can do. Yeah, I, I get the feeling there's that character. I'm trying to remember what the name of the character is in the Orville. Yes. Yes. Um, who is sort of uh, a cyborg of some sort and, and has that sort of data style quality. I mean, it's no, it's not Stephen Hawking, you know. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a lot it's, better no, than that. It is a lot better than that, but there's no feeling. There's no mm. emotion. Well, what's interesting is, so I'm just looking at the, the terms and conditions that apply to doing this. You can produce uh, using this, this system. And obviously it's not going to be appropriate until they put some British voices on it. And they're not doing crime at the moment. They're doing romance and self-improvement um, titles. So, yeah, non-fiction. And when you're listening to non-fiction, you don't care that much what the voice sounds like as long as they get it right and it, you know, it's clear. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I can see a market for non-fiction. But I found myself listening to those and just getting bored. Actually, well, I was switching off. I didn't. Hear I didn't the feel that human condition. So, uh, let's say you're an independent author, or we decided to do it this way, which we wouldn't. But you know, you could get your your thing produced. It gets released through Apple Books and exclusively through Apple Books, and it allows you, funnily enough, to go and make another production for other platforms. Mm. So this could be used in libraries. And this can be used through Apple Books. Now, from our experience, Apple Books don't actually generate a heck of a lot in terms of um, uh, audiobook revenue. It's still audible. Spotify has started to increase the the uh, contributions they've made because they've gone on to audiobooks as well. Uh, and they're, they're the owners now of Find Away Voices, our main distributive uh, platform. So interesting, interesting. I, I, you know, I'd be interested to hear your views, uh, listeners, to what you think of that. I mean, it is big development and what are apple ch- i mean what they haven't made clear is how much they would actually charge for a, for an ai production and the other question i would have is at what stage does an author have any control over the qr process or you know the qa probably nothing i mm. would imagine yeah this is what you get you, you know what i mean mm. yeah so Interesting times. Well, related to that, if I may, um, so today on um, Facebook, actually, one of our authors um, has had a practice with AI writing software, something called ChatGBT Doohickey. Do you know? Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. I'm really across. No, I've never heard of it. (laughs) I don't know if I've said that right, but that's what (laughs) And so he thought he'd give it a go and see if he could write a story using this very basic. And so... He gave it um, a structure. Uh, Let's write a story about a possessed library with a three-act structure. AI replied, sure. Here is a rough outline of a story with a three-act structure that features a possessed library. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And it has produced Act 1 and bullet points, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. You you can sort of input, you know, it, it creates something and then you say, okay, well, how about the main character does this? And how about this happens? And the AI goes, sure, here's a revised outline. And, you know, does it again. And then it actually writes for you. Now, he's put all this on um, his Facebook post. And this is Jonathan Peace. This is Jonathan Peace. I hope he doesn't, I hope you don't mind Jonathan me talking about this, but it's fascinating. And so it's actually written something. And you read it and you think, okay, plot wise, structure wise, it's okay. 
But it doesn't have, a bit like the, the narration, it doesn't have that feeling, that human condition, that human... That magic. The magic. It doesn't have the magic. Yeah. And would people want to read a book written by AI? Mm, uh, from a technical exercise, possibly. Um, but, you know, realistically, and this is where I have a real problem, because, I mean, certainly in the UK, we're undervaluing the the the, the, the creative input of authors and indeed all of us in the industry the publishers and we've been talking about this and we talk about this with joe simpson actually and you know the fact is that uh the 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 cost of books is artificially low it's less than a starbucks coffee for an ebook uh, in most cases and it just you know that has to change much as this country tends to undervalue a lot of its uh, most important people, its public servants, I would argue, and that's a, a little bit of politics that's creeping in there, um, it's the same for the creative side of things. So, interesting. Um, I we, we are going to be talking to uh, a representative of Plotter, who are an alternative to the Scrivener software, which a lot of authors use. And Plotter is uh, one of these uh, semi-AI um devices which will allow you to be much stronger in the sort of uh you know it, it works on a genre basis so that it can help you prompt you to write uh certain types of books and put the right sort of beats into your script yeah and i, I do think that's a good thing because that's a tool so yeah. it's not doing well, the gonna... job for you but it's assisting you in doing the before job. we have that interview at the end of the month we'll we'll be fiddling around with it I'll, i shall play with it and just see whether it helps me um structure my thoughts well, i did say Any, to anything um, anything that would do that would be great i did say to the the guy who approached us about coming on the podcast i said we're, we're going to have a play with it and we are both complete pantsers so it'll be interesting mm. to see how it copes with somebody who is a complete pantser absolutely let's get to our feature interview then this week which is joe simpson writing as jm simpson and she's created a three-book series so far, the Castleby series, which is uh, loosely based on Tenby in uh, West Wales, as she describes. Um, and uh, she's also written a Scottish series, which is uh, currently looking for uh, representation and publishing. So uh, interesting to, to think. But I think what's so interesting from this interview, here's an author who has created, each time she creates a series, she creates a world in which characters populate. And almost the place is more important than the, the I'm not saying that more important than the characters, but is a character in itself. Yeah. Well, and uh, we had a great fun talking to her. And, and as ever with these interviews, I mean, we just love uh, talking to anybody from the creative field. And Joe really gave us a sort of good spirit for the start of 2023. Well, our first guest of 2023. It feels like, it feels like we've had about a year off, but we haven't. It's two weeks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Wish it were a year off. Yes, anyway, no, 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 I don't mean that. The first guess of 2023. And, then. of course, it is Joe Simpson writing as J.M. Simpson. Welcome to the Hopcast Book Show. Thank you very much for having me. How do you get started writing in a new year? Because I think Christmas for everybody in the creative world seems to crash in and break up the flow. So in terms of, you know, starting again, for a new year when's that going to happen how do you get it going again or have you already <laughs> do you know it's it's been quite an interesting period for me because I finished a, a standalone novel literally just before Christmas and then I you know you do the whole 
put it aside for 24 hours, have a load of nightmares about it, wake up, fill the holes that you've been dreaming about. And, and then you kind of put it aside for a while. So I felt I'd sort of reached a bit of a natural break. And when we were away, we went to Tenby for a few days for New Year, sort of four or five days to the in Pembrokeshire. That sort of heavily inspires my current series of books. It's, it's based on Tenby. It's called Castleby, but it is actually Tenby with a little bit of Lyme Regis, a little bit of Sidmouth, a little bit of lots of other different places in Cornwall thrown in. And I find I don't write there, but I just sort of absorb inspiration. So my husband kept saying to me, is everything all right? You're really quiet. And, you know, and I'm just, I've just got a head full of plots and things like that. And, you know, so, so I think for me, I, I just sort of, I spend sort of this couple of weeks off, which is pretty hectic with dogs and teenagers. You know, I don't have to tell you that. You know, so you don't really get a spare minute. And then once, once sort of things start getting back to normal, I think to myself, right, you know, I've really, I've really got to do something. So I kind of, take a few hours to write down all the ideas fill up the little the little notebook one of which uh, there are many so I empty empty the head that way and try and resist the temptation to start a million new projects or new books or whatever had one at three o'clock in the morning this morning which is you know and I just I'm just desperate to write that down now yeah um but you know I'm on a deadline now I've got um I've got edits to do for the next in the Castleby series, which will be out just late spring. So much as I want to sit here writing, I'm editing, which is, yeah, not one of my favourite things to do. But, you know, you have to do it. And it's always quite nice to revisit a book and then think, actually, what the hell was I on when I wrote that? In terms of that editing process, then, who, who do you work with on that? So Heather J. Fitt is my editor. She's actually coming on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah we know Heather, yeah. I love Heather. Um, yeah, so she's she's been with me from the start. So it was, you know, it was it was one of those sort of weird things. I'd, I'd, I'd worked with a, another sort of editing firm and and I found it really difficult because there was a sort of a go-between between me and this the editor that I was working with. So everything was really diluted and it was really – and in the end I just thought I can't, I can't work like this you know I need Mm. to be able to have dialogue and kick things around so I put a search out for lots of different editors and I found Heather and we had a really nice chat over Zoom and she read some samples of my work and she's been part of the dream team ever since so she's the editor and Abby Rutherford is my proofreader she's awesome she's just like got a forensic eye (laughs) Yeah, so I know Abby as well because, oh, um, well, she, we follow each other on Twitter and she sent me a message. I can't actually remember how it started off, but she sent me a message, something about, I think she'd listened to one of our podcasts mm. about how we were talking about how difficult it is when you're freelance and you're trying to juggle and you're trying to make money. And she said, I felt, I felt everything you said. And so we sort of started talking about working in publishing and, you know, all the difficulties of it. So it's such a small world. (laughs) We know everybody. It is. And I think, you know, and I I wanted to sort of, I made the decision to self-publish the the Castleby series. I did Mm. did a few offers, but they just weren't right. I didn't, I didn't get a good feeling in my gut about it. And, and weirdly, this is, I was talking to someone about this the other day, to another writer. 
for me, the deal breaker is the covers of of some of the publishers. If I immediately think, oh, I think I don't think we're going to jail on on the covers because I think covers are one of the most important things. Sure. Um, then you've just you know you just got no hope. So so I did you know I decided to to sort of self publish uh, the Castleby series, and it was just really important to me to get consistency with the team and and you know and and have our little dream team, and it seems to work really well because you know obviously Abby and Heather know each other really well, and I've got you know a lovely guy who does my book covers who how he interprets my excessive ramblings and <laughs> random <laughs> pictures that I send him. Uh, I don't know, but it's always like Christmas when he sends me a new cover. So. <laughs> I know, I know what you mean. So our, our cover designer, um, Jane Mapp, she she always titles her emails "incoming." And when I see "incoming," <laughs> I think oh, it's a cover. <laughs> I get really excited. And then there's this process where we get the covers, and Rebecca will say. She'll look really tense when I... Yeah, because I never know what he's going to think. Cause sometimes... <laughs> right, because I'll look at them independently and I'll go, yeah, uh, one overall, uh, like the text on three, uh, too dark on number two. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite brusque, aren't I? It also depends on what mood he's in. If he's in a oh, bad mood, he's like... Most of the time. Mm. It's a bit... Mm. <laughs> Jane's listening to this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, do you ply him with good stuff so that you'll you'll get a favourable outcome and, and get him to choose the cover you want? <laughs> I should make a coffee for before, shouldn't I? Oh, and then, skin, a, a little massage, you know. I'll be on to you. I'll be on to you now. <laughs> yeah, candles, uh petals in the bath, yeah, that sort of thing. That's the sort of thing. You have showers, petals in the shower, does that work? <laughs> favourite meal, yeah, favourite music. <laughs> Pink Floyd. Uh, at the moment, it's Pink Floyd. I don't know why. I mean, I used to be a total anti-Pink so Floyd. We years. used a lot of travelling over Christmas and New Year, and every time we're in the car together, Pink Floyd. I didn't complain, but I just a couple of times I thought, oh, God, Pink Floyd again. Well, the thing about Pink Floyd <laughs> is when you're driving, it creates that sense of unhurried, you know, it's it's emotional and there's lots and lots of depth yes. to it. But it's not forcing you onto your foot down on the pedal and dicing. I mean, I'm quite happy to, to trundle behind a HGV at 56 miles an no, hour or whatever it is. I really like Pink Floyd. Yeah, because you can be quite a, um, should we say, emotional driver. Yeah, I've been, I've been <laughs> trying to. Yeah, why are we talking about this? We've got to talk to Joe about her books in the Custody series. <laughs> we've well, gone Floyd. round on the tangent. <laughs> round on the tangent. We've we have. We have. Right. Tangent. So we've covered. We covered. We've mentioned the books. Let's and, go back. Uh, let, let's talk let's about your principal series and. What I love about the concept is that you've got a character involved in the lifeboats. And yes. that's kind of the, the thrust of, of each story is around that. How many shouts have you been out on? Have you, have you done <laughs> some of that for research? I haven't, you know, I haven't been out on any shouts. I think there'll be a whole insurance issue there. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, so it, it was it was quite an interesting process because I think, I think it's safe to say that I think I've been in practically every RNLI shop there is in the country. Lots of jigsaws. When my daughters were young, it was an absolute obsession of theirs. So wherever, and because we always have to holiday by the coast because of me, it was sort of, you know, they went hand in hand. So, you know, I've been in numerous lifeboats. I've, I've sat, sat there, I've looked at the gear, I've talked to the crew, yeah. never saying to them, I'm writing this series or anything like that. So the research for it was, was actually quite difficult because despite sort of numerous requests, 
there, there wasn't really any engagement from them to, to sort of help me on this journey, which was quite hard. But there's a lot out in the public domain. And I've at the beginning of the book, I've had to say, you know, I've taken quite a lot of literary license here because also I think the more technical you are, you just lose the reader. Mm. You know, if you're just bogged down in in all of the, the significant detail, if you like, I just yeah. think that that's just too too much. So, um, so I have employed a lot of literary license um, with regard to that. But then, you know, saying that, you know, I've I've got the mechanics handbook for the Tamar self writing lifeboat. So, you know, so it swings and roundabouts. But I do research for a living, so I think it's quite safe to say research is quite easy for me. But I do, I have to temper this. I have to temper the story with the fact that it's fiction. And and I don't want to get bogged down in lots of procedures and this, that and the other. I want to try and keep it real, but but keep it as a story as well. It's interesting because, you know, there's obviously a big industry Graham Bartlett. I was going to say that from the police it, procedural point of view, yeah. it's the UK's go-to man. To if you want to have check out whether it works from that twin perspective of being realistic enough to be to not let cops choke in their coffee, but at the same time give you the liberal uh, creative license to to create a story that works. I don't suppose there is an equivalent in the hour and lie and the whole life no. world. But so I think the first novel that. That was very much uh, around the crew. In fact, weirdly, it was the first title, the working title was called The Crew, but there was thought to be too many sort of gang connotations with that. Um, so so we dumped that. And you went with Sea State. I went with Sea State, yeah, because, you know, it's a sort of a nautical term, if you like, and mm. I, I quite, I quite like the vibe that it, it gave off, really. It just sort of came to me at sort of about 2 o'clock in the morning. I thought, oh, that's quite a good idea. Sounds like that's when you get your best ideas. <laughs> so, so the first book is is very much, you know, we we sort of we we come to to the crew and they've had their own traumas. They've lost crew members that you know the skipper nearly died. So that's sort of the first first story is is very much a, around that and various shouts. A lot of them are actual shouts that happened in real life that I've got from various. Uh, RNLI publications and their newsletters and stuff like that. But the second story and the third, there's that element there within the town, but we've got different characters coming in. And I think the third one, there's, I think there's just a few mentions of, of the lifeboat crew, uh, maybe like a shout. I, I can't. Yeah, I think there's one shout. Because I just I didn't want to do it to death, really. And I wanted, you know, different elements. Um, You know, in book two, we've got a soldier, you know, an ex-soldier coming in and trying to get over his trauma. And then in the second and the third book, we've got a little bit more of a sort of a crime overlay going through it as well, which which I I don't know how that happened. That just (laughs) happened. It it just completely happened one day. I find I find the writing side of things to be a complete mystery to me I sort of sit down and I think oh I think this might happen today and then before I know it I'm 5,000 words in and I'm in a direction I have never anticipated that that would happen that's, that's a wonderful feeling yeah that is the best feeling that I'm, I'm the same and yeah when, and, when I, I, and I actually I really like it when writers say that because 
I think there's a lot of merit in the people in the, the the method of plotting your book out beforehand and having everything you know what you're going to write and kind of filling I, in the gaps. Well, I respect However, it, but I can't do it exactly. However, I love the fact that you you're basically saying you know the sort of creative process is is stronger than your mind taking you off it in the direction you didn't expect. And it's been it's really interesting because um, in the book I'm editing at the moment, the fourth one, in my mind. Very clearly, I had a character who I thought, right, so this is going to be the villain, if you like, one of the villains. And when I started writing this character, I, I just couldn't do it. It, it. I physically couldn't write this character. And this character is now, couldn't be more different to, to a villain. And so I've had to now introduce another character who is a villain and keep this other one in there so uh, it's crazy and I would love to understand how it happens but I have no idea how it happens they didn't want to be a villain it's well like yeah, they just didn't but, want to be yeah. and they, they were saying to you no I'm not going to do it yeah I mean I I just I take my hat off to these people that laboriously you know sort of plan it all out and you know and there's like a million post-its for every artist oh, yeah. yeah I can't do that I'm random bits of paper and Mm. scribbled words and and then you know and I, no one is more surprised than me when I type the end and I think oh goodness <laughs> I don't know how that happened at all like, um, <laughs> but it's a lovely process I you know I think it it's a it, it's such a lovely process to be able to create these worlds if you like yeah. and and inhabit these worlds and 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 it sounds really odd but I actually really miss some of them you know I've and I've sort of I've I've pretty much spoiled some places for myself because I've used them as a basis and then created this whole and I think well I want to live there but and then I think well it's actually not like that in real life so actually I do yeah. I, I want to live there in my book and yeah you want to live in the book not in the yeah, in the... <laughs> yeah. so so I've set this this new series and I'm, I'm trying to find a home for it um and it, it's a series set in Scotland and um and this time rather than the lifeboat we've we've got a little bit of a theme of mountain rescue because in these um remote you know Scottish everybody's in mountain rescue absolutely so there's a shout and there's like 50 people go out so you know everybody and his wife goes out and, and is part of mountain rescue and and I was very very lucky in that um I did quite a lot of research with a, a wonderful man who is the head of Mountain Rescue up there. So he was lovely in telling me what worked and what didn't work and what I could do, take artistic license with and stuff like that. Um, but I think, you know, and, and what I've done is I've used, you know, different parts of various areas of Scotland and brought them together to make this one place where there's and there's another it's sort of you know very sort of community based and I really want to live there now (laughs) and I miss it and I think oh you know I really want to get because I've written two there and I'm you know and I know I know what I'm going to write for the third one and I'm I'm sort of a bit desperate to to get started on that but then (laughs) you know when I was in Tembe I had a really good idea for book six in Tembe so I really want to get started on you've that. got so, too many things to do no I've got a day job as well so you know it's oh gosh well what's coming through is you have total passion for what you create and the places that you create which is fantastic 
I'm really drawn. I mean, I get this sense because where are you speaking to us from in Kent? Is it? Yes. Yeah. Right. So I, I feel this pull the, to the west in your location choice. <laughs> well, you are on the other side. I, well, I grew up in the West Country. So my parents, I think when I was about four or five, my parents moved from Essex down to Devon. Um, so I grew up in Devon and Cornwall and I love Devon and Cornwall. I don't love it in the summer at all. Nobody does. So. <laughs> um, you know, and I remember, you know, I, mean, I learned surfing um, sort of Newquay and Woolacombe. And, yeah. You know, and that, that was in the days when, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it was it was sort of quite cool. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's do rigueur now. now, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, now it's just my goodness me. And and I'm noticing this. When we first discovered Tembe, which was probably about um fifteen years ago, because the kids were tiny. Um it was it was like Cornwall used to be to us, yeah. you know, and that's what we loved about it. And it was so, you know, it was really reasonable as well to stay there in the summer. And now it's it's just, you know, it's just, just like Cornwall. I think it is that thing of when you're growing up in, in Devon and Cornwall, because we were students in Devon in Exeter. Oh, lovely. And and I worked there. And Cornwall's been my, you know, place where my soul lives, I think, um, most of the year. Uh, it is It is the most extraordinary thing. And I think what's so great about those two counties, and I don't discount the others, but boy, does it. It's about storytelling, oh, yeah. the community, the way people talk to each other. My grandmother grew up, I, she was in Somerset, and everybody stopped to share a tale. It wasn't just yeah. sort of, how are you, Margaret, la, la, la. It was a, someone, you know, everyone shared whatever happened, and it was a bit of gossip. It's a fantastic storytelling place, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. And my parents had a shop in a place called Axminster. Mm. Uh, which which pre um recession was was a really bustly market town um yeah, i know it yeah and and so we used to have a, a shop there and, and i used to work in it slave labor um <laughs> from a very early age um till basically till i was tall enough to actually key into the till and for it to open and not knock me out um and the characters, and I'm sure, I'm sure this is where half of my characters come from. You know, the the characters that used to come in um, and sort of chat and, and share a yarn, you know, are are sort of <laughs> almost part of your DNA. Now. Yes, yeah. Because, you know, there's so many different types of people, and it was, you know, depending on what the season was, and you know, and I think, you know, when you when you spend a lot of time in sort of customer facing stuff. I, you know, I did quite a few stints working um, at sort of hotel and restaurant in Porlock Weir in Somerset as well. Um, mm. you know, and that, again, you know, these tiny little communities that, you know, and you all just are this tiny sort of community and you're sort of thrown in together for the madness that is the sort of the summer holiday period. <laughs> you know, and, and it, it was just the most amazing sort of time and, and almost a, a lovely sort of framework to to build characters off and stories and absolutely absolutely i think i think that is very well summed up actually i mean i my uh my memories are of Krukern, which is not very far from oh no axminster yeah. um and my dad uh, my grandfather my step-grandfather i should say um was a farmer in 
um, Ilminster. Area. Oh, yes. yes. So, you know, I know that area, but he was the great storyteller in my life, I think. Uh, he he would sit me down as a very young boy with all these incredible stories of his life on the farm and the generations going through and all the sort of scrapes they used to get into and how he was just old enough to sign up for that. He was into the Royal Flying Corps in 1919, but the war ended, so he didn't have to fight. And then the second time round, he didn't have to fight because he was a farmer. But all of the things that he told me about, all that era of the communities and the people and the characters and the people who worked on his farm, is amazing, mm. amazing. And it stuck with me, that sort of sense of, of you know the oral tradition i suppose yes but just that i mean i i remember as a student do you remember this when you were traveling around i mean i don't know if you did this much but in exeter when i used to catch the bus around exeter yeah and it was all these uh elderly devonians <laughs> and they get on and there'd be a be a, a chat would get in and he'd be surrounded by ladies and they'd be having a good, you, I think. good old natter at him <laughs> you know Oh, oh so nice to see you, Derek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're looking well, you know. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or they, so, they pick on younger people, saying, so, "About time you had a bath." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something with that air, America. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They were never, never shy in coming forward, were they? No. And, and it's just a wonderful <laughs> thing. Now, what I'm really so fascinated about is the way that you've, with the first series, and I, I, I'm getting the impression that possibly with the second as well is that the star of the show really is the place that you've created and that you've got these sort of adjoining stories, but the focus switches from from one protagonist to the next. Is that right? It kind of is, yeah. And and I didn't really... It didn't really sort of occur to me until um, the first book had come out and then the, the second one... And people kept talking about the strength of characters and how they loved the characters and and they they felt like it, that they wanted to live there. Um, and, and this is something that I get consistently. You know, it, if you could live anywhere, people say, oh, I'd live in Castlebury. You know, <laughs> you know, and I think, I'll, I'll take that because, you know, that's just, that's lovely. Um, but I do think, and I, it's not a conscious thing, but I, I like to create um, a sort of a community and I see it. But, you know, I see it very clearly. You know, I see, I see where all the, you know, where everybody lives and, and everything like that. And then I, I see all these sort of key people that are intrinsic to the local community. And in coastal villages, you know, particularly, I mean, this was particularly the case, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the lifeboat crew, everyone knew the lifeboat crew. You know, mm. they had a special area in the pub that they used to go in. You know, nobody, you know, no locals went and stood there because that was for the lifeboat crew, you know. And so it was, it was very much like that. And I think, um, so when I write now, I try to sort of think, who are the kingpins, you know, of the, of the town, if you like, who are the people? And, and I think that's growing up in a, in a sort of a smallish market town. You know, you have these sort of linchpins of the community and these sort of communities within communities. And I think, yeah, I think that's, and I, I sort of create these places. So the Scottish one, yeah, it's the same place. It's the same. This is sort of a bit more crime fiction, I guess. It's the same sort of put upon type detective who's who's trying to solve these terrible things. And you know, and the, but everybody, because it's a small community, has some sort of involvement in it. Yeah, some agency in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my husband's like awful lot of people die in this community, Joe. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. 
but it's fiction. <laughs> That's always the case, though, isn't it? I mean, someone else, one of our other people we interviewed said the same thing that actually if you added up all the the deaths in the tiny community yeah. then no one would ever live there because no. statistically you've got a good chance of being done with you can't write a book about nothing happening or everybody no, you have to be in a big city but I, I recognize what you're saying about the the lifeboat because we spent some time in Mausel and of course that's the home of the Penley lifeboat crew that were lost yeah um uh sort of over christmas wasn't it and uh 20 30 years ago or something i think it is now and there is this feeling in the pub in the ship that, that there is this corner where they go yeah. uh the, the current crew and you're not supposed to go anywhere near it i don't know if you felt yeah that. but also particularly with that place i did feel a sort of almost a not haunted exactly yeah, but yeah. a the memories the weight of the memories it well and, cornwall cornwall has a lot of that doesn't it? I mean, you know, certain places have a have a feeling that even from the gravestones and whatever, there's a certain heaviness. But Mausel, despite being the most one of the most oh, beautiful it's spots, beautiful. it's lovely. It's very, very, you know, there's a there is that feeling of that loss because they lost the entire crew, didn't yeah. they? And yeah. and the people they were trying to save in one night is extraordinary uh, heroism that they you know they went out at all into the strength of wind that they were facing. Um, and and they were you know smashed against the rocks and it it's truly tragic place, but I I can see why it's such a an opportunity in a literary sense to go for it. And I don't know of any other I authors doing that. it. Yeah, you were the only person who's who's you know used the sort of the lifeboat as part of the focus. Uh, to my knowledge, yeah, but it's weird because I mean I don't I don't think people perceive it as it. I don't think they kind of know what to expect if they know that it's it's sort of the backdrop is a lifeboat crew. I don't, you know, I think that might actually put some people off. But but I think the concept for me is, and this is what draws me to this. So it, it's the concept of these men and women who leave everything they love to plough into a stormy sea and rescue a stranger. And you don't know what you're facing, you know, you you might have left your Christmas lunch or whatever or your anniversary or, or, you know, any of these things, your kid's birthday party. And you, without question, go and put your life at risk for for other people. And and it's, you know, that it's that that intrigues me. It's that that initially gave me the idea when I you know I, when I watched the you know the lifeboat launch on a really stormy night and I thought my goodness you know who are these people what are their lives like um so you know and and that's that's sort of where where the sort of the idea was born and it's the same for this you know the Scottish series you know again it's it's this sort of the, this concept you know will you go out in a massive blizzard with 50 other people to look for some idiot that's gone climbing in a pair of flip-flops and you sort of think you know there's something really special about these these people that risk everything to save others and and I, I think that's quite a nice sort of platform to to write about you know and so, they generally have other day jobs don't they 
Oh yeah, they all yeah. Some of them are doctors. Some of them, yeah, they've all yeah. Yeah, they all have you know. They're not doing this for for the cat. I, I could remember so <laughs> in both and family holidays. So I remember that you you would go into a shop and you wouldn't know who were the lifeboat people necessarily unless they told you. But then they would set off the the cannon thing. Yeah. Which used to frighten them, Blair, yeah. absolutely frighten me to death. I'd be sat on the beach, <laughs> but you'd then they'd just come out of wherever they were, wherever they're working, and just go for it yeah. and, and do it really quickly as well. And you'd, it'd be like, you know, if someone sprinkled salt on an anthill or whatever it is that you do, yeah, it, it's inc- <laughs> yeah, it is, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but I mean, they do they do employ some full time members of staff in particularly busy areas. Um, yeah. you know, so there's there's always like a, a the um, skipper there, I think, in in busy areas. But f- for the most part, it's all just volunteers. You know, they don't get paid for it. You know, I just that is incredible, isn't it? They're yeah. risking their lives. Yeah, I love. just find the whole concept un- unbelievable. You know that, and 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 it was so worthy of a story. And I couldn't I couldn't really understand that nobody had had sort of thought about this before. And mm. weirdly, I actually, I wrote it as a, a tv uh drama first of all um because i saw it really clearly as a as a tv drama absolutely i could see it i think it would be a really good one because when you think about the, the especially crime it's so saturated with police yeah. cathedral yeah. It, it's a it's a natural fit and i, I think, understand that people yeah. love, love that but sometimes something that's got a little bit of an edge or a little bit different and we're an island nation you know this is yeah. quite a yeah. significant part i, I have of think our... someone's going to pick it up but i mean what's nick berry doing now is he available to play doug he's probably quite old he now he's yeah, getting on a bit. in um there was a show at west west bay um, Nick, just along from Lyme Regis, and Nick Berry played the harbour master. If you would sum up your experience so far of being a writer, an author, being self-published, and all the other things, I mean, how would you sum up that that experience? Challenging. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Uh, I think challenging times a million. Um, I mean, I always thought that I had quite high levels of resilience and self-motivation but there's absolutely nothing compared to what's needed in this game and I think you know self-publishing my learning curve has literally been almost vertical since I started and you know obviously hindsight is the wonderful thing and I wish I'd done stuff differently you know and I, I think the industry is so different now and it's so so geared up for celebrity writers and yep. you know and I just think you know with the best will in the world unless you've got something really really different and really really special you know it, it's a it's a really hard slog so I think I I love the writing element I find I find everything else very difficult the, the PR side the, you know because I have no budget for anything um so you know the PR side is is a slog because there is, I think, with the best will in the world, there is there is still quite a lot of I don't know what the word is. It's not stigma. There's there's different attitudes towards self published authors. Yes. Um, and it, it's almost like you're not really worthy. I think, and and for for us, you know, we we kind of, you know. 
there's nobody sort of banging our drum for us, you know, so you sort of have to try and bang your out or just hope that if someone reads your book, they'll tweet about it or, or say something nice about it, you know, and that's like gold dust. But it is incredibly challenging. And I would say if anybody's embarking on this journey, then, you know, bucket loads of resilience is needed more than you would ever think. But I mean, I guess it must be the same for you guys. You know, I've listened to your podcasts and, you know, and and it is, it's it's a really sort of sobering business, I think, you know. It's on few, well, I think you've probably gathered from our, most recent podcasts we just feel it's unfairly skewed yes and, oh, absolutely um and i think that the publishing revolution as it was you know the self-publishing revolution and the the the, the tools and the platforms which to do it have un, are less effective than they when they first started because i think the pandemic changed i still believe this i think the pandemic changed everything well, once, right. yeah. once the traditional publishers lost their cozy bookshop deals because they were shut they had to do something to shift books and they discovered what we'd already knew which was online ebooks they were no no longer sniffy about it and spending money in amazon ads and facebook ads and they've done it uh which they weren't doing and basically that playground has been taken over and the bullies are back <laughs> and it just feels that way and you know where is it going to where is the place that you know the independent sector can flourish uh that the that the traditional publishers aren't using at the moment i have i don't know where it is i don't think anyone does at the moment and i think that's the big problem yeah and i i think you know it doesn't help either in the self-publishing world where you have people marking their own homework if you like and then just you know <laughs> uploading it to the end and then upload it to Twitter, uh, not to Twitter, to, you know, to Amazon. And, you know, and that fills me with horror as well, because I think, you know, it's it sort of, for the writers that kind of do it properly, <laughs> go on the journey properly and, you know, spend time editing, you know, at, at our own cost and, you know, spend yep. time proofreading, making sure we got a proper cover and not that it's knocked up on the back of a fag packet. Um, <laughs> And I think, you know, we're sometimes we're sort of lumped in with these sort of people that just sort of randomly type stuff and then upload it for all to see. And, and I, you know, and I, I sort of, I wonder whether or not there's, there's going to sort of be any change to that sort of process soon or, or whether it will just still remain the same. Where, yeah. Where we're all sort of lumped it's in together isn't it? Because... If if as anyone can upload a book, which is yeah. a true fact, it means that there are people who will just think, "Excellent, I'll just write something." Well, and- there is that. I think. I think. I think you have. To, I mean, there's a rough with the smooth here, isn't there? Because clearly, everyone in this conversation is doing it the right way in terms of trying to produce the best professional product they can uh, that is indistinguishable from something that the big five have put out. Let's put it that way. But the, the but the whole thing is there's always going to be a slipstream where other people can just take advantage of that platform yeah. as well. And yeah. actually who, who is the person who's going to become a gatekeeper? Is it Amazon? Yeah. I don't trust them for that because let's face it on an almost weekly basis, it feels like there's always a glitch in their system, which, you know, makes uh, it impossible to publish a book or, you know, they threaten to take you down or whatever it might be. 
Yeah, Imagine yeah. that happening to those of us who've worked really hard and then Amazon decide that the quality threshold is X and you've fallen short of it. Where do we go then? Yeah. So I think, I think we're, unfortunately, we have to lump it. With we have to put a lot of trust in readers themselves. Yeah. And that you were talking about word of mouth. And I, th- I think word of mouth is very powerful. And I, I, as a reader, if I read something I love, I will tell everybody and their dog that it's a brilliant book. <laughs> and so we have to hope that a reader picks up somebody's manuscript they've uploaded to Amazon, haven't edited it, it's full of typos. They will not either not tell anyone about it or they will put a review on it. They, I think most readers are quite kind. They want to support self-published authors as much as any other writer, you know, any of the traditionally published authors. And Well, I suppose the other question is, how do we support each other? Because at yeah. the moment, you know, this is an opportunity for us to 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 share some ideas and, and, and introduce you to our listeners, which is great. But that's one way. But we've got to do more, I think, as a group of people. I know that Ally, the Alliance of Independent Authors, does a lot of good work. But it's at a certain level, I think. I don't think it's really bringing together the community terribly well. I think it does a lot of stuff which is important and represents uh, the interests um, with with all the swirling pressures around the publishing market they try and, and sort of campaign on our behalf. But it's not necessarily making us feel that we're part of something. So. There's got to be some way we can do that. But, you know, again, who's got the time? Who's got the money to do it? Mm. Money, I I think, is the key, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, you know, some of the sort of the um, literary festivals and and stuff like that, you know, have, you know, they have the big names there. And, you know, and I get that. But, you know, where where are the, you know, where are the the smaller publishers? Where where are the authors showcasing? There. Where are the the self published authors that you know have had some success with with their and they just don't seem to um, think that they're almost that their voice is worthy. I think in some cases, yeah, mm. that's something that I've advocated for a long time. That you know, sad, the Harrogate yeah. fringe needs to be a thing. <laughs> it really does. Yes, it so does. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And and you know, recently they've had their second marquee. So why isn't that being placed? into the hands of people who can, because it's sat, sat there doing nothing most of the time, that brown marquee, apart from the odd, I dare say, publisher event on a Thursday or something. It, it should be an opportunity for, uh, yeah, the small guys to, but, you know, and, and they may only draw an audience of 20 to 30 people away from the main tent, but doesn't that lift the whole event and make it just that much more inclusive? Um I, I, I've never had the courage to go and talk to the organisers, but I mean, I think well, that's, that's, that's not true. We did say, suggest to Denise Mina when we interviewed her, didn't it's true, we? True, but she was director, director of the programme last year, but I mean, you know, she'd done a bit. She, yeah. was, she was drinking the champagne and giving thanks that everyone turned up. <laughs> anyway, let's get into, uh, before we disappear down the, the, the depression hole of independent well, publishing. Just one more point, though. Okay. There, there has been some change. So if you think about the Crime Writers Association, yes, true. you can now. Um, submit yourself as a self-published author for awards, which was, a, I think, was a massive change. People moaned about the money, but you know, it's a, it's a charity. They have to they have to get their funding from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are small literary festivals which we've taken part in quite a few of them now. So mm-hmm. Slaughter in Southwold, Halifax. Um, yeah, there's lots of noir events around the country where we're getting it's in. Yeah. It's only a little, small change, but incremental. It's, it, yeah, it, it, you know, if we push more, yeah. <laughs> We'll get there. I think. 
I want be more optimistic. Okay, all right, all right. Well, let's <laughs> let's go for the the point where everyone's really been just sort of sitting there going, "Yeah, it's very nice, very nice, very nice." Why not? Get to the random question. Okay, so let's get to the random question. Okay, here we go. Rebecca's random question: What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? It was some weird looking shellfish on the island of Mykonos that was ah. in amongst some utterly delicious uh, pink, tiny little pink squid or octopus. I think they were pickled or something. There was there was something random in there, which actually just looked like a huge bunch of snot. Um, <laughs> and was treated in much the same way. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's it's interesting if you if you order the I mean I am thinking of France where I ordered free de mer one time for a birthday and you know you get these you know the cake stand full of yeah, all yeah. sorts of random stuff and then there's some always some ectoplasm in there somewhere. Um it's like something out of Ghostbusters, isn't yeah. it? And you just, <laughs> yeah. you just think, what is that? Absolutely. I know it's not an oyster, so what is it? Um but yeah. you know that's i mean you take your take your life in your hands with this sort of thing don't you with shelf you won't touch shellfish uh, no think anything with eyes lives in shells has tentacles i'm not interested mm, i'm trying to think <laughs> now what's the weirdest thing i've eaten i mean well i can tell you my weirdest okay, thing go on paint paint so i was at prime it was my first week of infant school <laughs> first week of infant school you know when you blow pictures you oh yes well i sucked instead of blue blue I and suck. I didn't tell anyone that I'd consumed some paint. I went to bed that night and thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die in the night. I'm not going to wake up. I panicked. And it was I poster bled. paint, was it? I was too scared. Yeah, I was too scared to tell my mum because I thought she'd be cross with me for eating poster paint. And Brilliant. I woke up the next day, I was fine. Oh. But that's the strangest thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> I've, eat, I've eaten a witchetty grub um, in the outback <laughs> in Australia, which was kind of nutty. But it was alive, so that was a bit odd. Oh, I couldn't eat anything oh. and, alive. Um I've eaten crocodile. In fact, most of their endangered native species seem to be on the menu when I was there in 1990. <laughs> and I just remember going around the Kakadu National Park in Northern Territory, which is the one that they filmed Crocodile and D in. Oh, yeah. And you go in these one of these metal flat-bottom boats, similar to what you see in the sort of uh, you know Southern America, USA. Um, and you're going to look at the wildlife and the crocs and the and whatever and every time the warden or the ranger who was driving the boat pointed out something to us the bloke in front of me was a restaurateur from sydney and he said how would you cook that so it'd be like a little bit of bad butter a little bit of garlic maybe and <laughs> it, okay. you put anything in uh, butter and garlic about a little bit of uh, you know paprika that'd be really nice on a you know this this rare sea snake or water snake or whatever we're looking at which of which there are only six mating pairs in the park or something and he'd be going yeah, I bet that'd be really good on the barbie. You'd have to cook it like, you know, flash fried initially. And then you go, blimey, O'Reilly. I mean, everything he thought was on the menu, including these five meter long crocodiles, which, you know, would snap him in half. You need a big seconds. barbecue for that. But oh, uh, you know, I, I mean, it all tastes like weird. chicken. <laughs> yeah, tastes like chicken, right? <laughs> yeah, crocodile did taste a bit like chicken. Yeah, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> when it boils down to it, yeah. Boils <laughs> down to it. Wouldn't you barbecue it? Don't even go there. <laughs> Well, look, Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast. We've Thank we've gained a lot. And uh, I think we both want to go on holiday in both of your locations. So uh, get on and build it. <laughs>
Well, thank you for having me. I hope I haven't rambled on too much about the joy of writing. Not we like people who ramble about we, the joy of writing. That's why we're here. <laughs> that's why we're here. We ramble like, you know, you know, we are professional ramblers, apart from the actual outdoor bit. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm quite partial, but. Yeah, yeah. You, you'll struggle to get me out in this sort of, uh, this time of year. Anyway, thank you so much and all the best with those future projects. Thank you very much. Really good to talk to you. J.M. Simpson. And, uh, and we didn't even mention ketchup. No, we didn't. We didn't, amazingly. Uh, well, look, we've got so many interviews lined up this year. It's been amazing. You put out a tweet before <laughs> Christmas and it's just gone crazy. Well, I mean, or stupidly, during... I put out the tweet just as we were setting off for a, a three-day tour of the UK over mm. New Year's mm-hmm. Eve, um, which was a big mistake. So I put a, out a tweet saying, anyone interested in coming on our podcast in 2023, let me know. We are now booked up to the end of July. Believe it or not, we have got enough guests to see us through to the end of July. And that doesn't even include people I've vaguely said, oh, we'll get in touch with you in the new year. So it's That's fantastic. Be, it's, it's fantastic. amazing. So I was trying to arrange all this on my phone while we were traveling. And it, it was quite tricky, right. but I managed it, I think. That's great. Well, uh, our next guest is? Our next guest next week is Anne Coates. Anne Coates, who's published by Red Dog Press. She is, indeed, yes. Uh, a sort of veteran of the of the crime yeah, scene. And uh, we've been hoping to talk to her for a while, haven't we, actually? We so have, it was yeah. great that she approached us. Yeah, we're looking forward to speaking to Anne. Uh, so that's next week. Well, the week ahead is, uh, it's fair to say we're fully back to work now. Uh, here at Hobeck, and we've got lots and lots of author meetings, all sorts of things going I on. I know. It's, it's something about New Year, isn't it, where people say, oh, we should catch up. And yes. So well, we... understandably, because we really, you know, we're very determined to, you know, as you'll have gathered from our podcasts over the last few months, um, it's very hard to guarantee anything in this business. Uh, but you can at least put together a structure and, and a set of aims that you're trying to achieve. And uh, that's an important time. So, I mean, New Year is always a time for that in personal lives and in business. And that's what we're going to be doing. Yes. And I'm going to learn the guitar this year. You are. And you're doing making great strides. I bought your guitar for <laughs> Making great noises. You mean. Uh, no, well, you're just doing, you know, you're doing really well. Um, I'm very proud of you. It's great. So join us again for the Hobcast Book Show next week with Anne Coates. And, of course, every week we'll uh, endeavour to keep the programme going. Every week. We, uh, we love doing this. And uh, we love your company here on the Hobcast Book Show. But from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.